Well, folks, Israel has been in the news, uh, not again, always. And so I, I feel like our uh, comments are, are right on time. And I thank you for coming and listening and not throwing anything yet. Uh, I'm really appreciative uh, of that. We spoke about uh, Israel last week up until... Uh, 1956, and I would like to continue our study. It's part of our series, Foundations of the Faith. Uh, this is our wall, not the wailing wall, uh, but this is our wall of foundational beliefs. And as you know, if you've been with us, we've been addressing all of these subjects. This one now, Israel, because the Bible says so much about it, we ought to give Israel attention as well. And we've been spending time on the land of Israel, and I'd like to do so again this evening and next week move on to something else with regard to Israel. Uh, tonight, let's talk about 1956 in the Holy Land to the present day. Uh, last week, I mentioned to you a terrible war uh, against Israel, then a rather fledgling nation. It was in 1956, and it was begun by Egypt with the supply and encouragement of Russia. And it was the stated interest of the Egyptians at that time to choke Israel economically. And so Israel, as I mentioned, nationalized first the Suez Canal and then also um, affected a blockade, keeping Israel from having access to the Indian Ocean, waterways, you see. It would cripple Israel's economy and eventually lead to their demise, and that, in fact, was the stated interest of then-Egyptian President Nasser. His intent, uh, quite uh, boldly declared, was to destroy Israel. But it didn't happen. In 100 hours, in fact, the Israeli military crossed uh, over into the Sinai and encircled the Egyptian army. Well, the United Nations entered in. It was a very critical situation, and so they made their presence known and persuaded Israel to withdraw from the Sinai uh, suggesting to Israel that the United Nations would establish a peacekeeping force in the Sinai. And so Israel, perhaps somewhat naively, agreed to the terms. And uh, the UN installed this peacekeeping force, but Egypt was not happy with the arrangement at all. And so in 1967, a very key year, uh, Egypt uh, decided to throw the United Nations peacekeepers uh, out of the Sinai. This they successfully accomplished, and it was because they were planning still yet now the third major invasion of Egypt. Remember, the first uh, was in 1948 when Israel's statehood was declared, and the second uh, onslaught, whose intention it was to drive Israel into the sea was in 56, now 67. As a prelude to the next major conflict, uh, Egypt removed the United Nations peacekeepers 
uh, from the Sinai Desert. And then this happened. Egypt and uh, Syria and Jordan, along with Iraq and Saudi Arabia, moved their armies right up against Israel's borders. And when they positioned themselves this way, Syria began a bombardment of Israel from the Golan Heights. You see it uh, up there on the screen. It's a very, very important piece of real estate. I shuddered to think that under pressure, Israel might give it back to Syria. You see, any good military person worth his or her salt knows that the high ground is the most prized real estate in any military conflict. And so even prior to this time, Syria had been raining down armament on the Israeli civilian population below. I know this for a fact because we have one with us even tonight who remembers uh, having to take shelter as a younger person when all this was happening there in the land. And so President Nasser of Egypt at the time uh, made this very clear declaration. He said, our basic goal is the destruction of Israel. And so on June 4th in 1967, Cairo, capital of Egypt, Cairo Radio made this public announcement. We will wipe Israel off the face of the map and no Jew will remain alive. And so on June 5th of 1967, a combined force of Arab nations attacked Israel again with 650,000 soldiers, 2,700 tanks, and 1,000 and 90 aircraft. And so Israel once again was greatly outnumbered. And yet, somehow in six days, the war was over and Israel once again, against these odds, prevailed. It has come to be known as the Six Day War. How did it happen? Is Israel's ministry that, uh, military that good? It's plenty good. But it ain't that good. Israel prevailed once again because the Bible, God's word, is the guarantee of Israel's survival. And 56 and 67 simply offer us proof, living proof, evidence of the fact that what God says he will do, what he said he'll do for the Jewish people, he will do in spite of them. What he says he'll do for Christian people, he will do in spite of them. I have to tell you, if God said it, you can count on it. And just to help you be assured of the integrity of his word, he gave you the Jews. There's no explanation for the existence of Jews today. Greater nations have come and gone. Why are we still here? You tell me. No, I'll tell you. Because God made an eternal covenant with the Jews. It's an illustration of the fact that anybody can take him up at his word. If he promised you something, believe it. He will fulfill it because that's just his nature. 
And so the God of the Bible, again in 67, kept his word to Israel. And as a result of Israel's victory, her borders were vastly expanded. And so you can get a look here at the extent of Israel's new 1967 borders. Israel took there uh, the Sinai uh, and also the Golan Heights, which, which was part of Syria, was under Syrian uh, control. By the way, if you go to Israel, and I hope you do, you can visit the Golan Heights today because it's part of Israel. We go to the Golan Heights, and you can stand on the heights and look down, and you can see the Sea of Kinneret, or Harp, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. And you could look into Syria, and you could look into Lebanon, and you could see how close these people groups are. You can get a feel for what's going on. So this is an advertisement. If you're interested in going to Israel, uh, on the 27th of this month, a Sunday at 4 o'clock, I'd like to meet with you in the chapel and I'll show you some slides, tell you some stories, answer your questions, and Lord willing, we'll go in September. All righty, so these were Israel's borders in 67, and then something else, even much more significant than what happened in the Sinai and the Golan Heights, took place. For the first time since A.D. 70, the Jewish people had unobstructed access to the Western Wall. Here it's referred to as the Wailing Wall. We've not been able to get there in all of these centuries. It's a very special and holy spot for my people. And we've not been able to get there. And these Israeli paratroopers were the first ones there. So for the first time in centuries, Jews could go to the wall and pray. It was quite an event uh, oh, the whole nation of Israel rejoiced. Jews around the world uh, rejoiced. But as perhaps is no surprise to you, the Arab peoples were not very happy. And so six years later, all the while planning this, uh, they attacked again. It was called the Yom Kippur War, 1973. So if you're counting with me, we have the War of 48, then of 56, and then of 67, and now here is attack number four in 1973. But it wasn't an ordinary day. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus. God commanded it. It's a special day when Jewish people get together acknowledging that they have transgressed the righteous law of Almighty God. And they fast and they pray and they seek to repent. Oh, I wish they would recognize the blood of the Lamb as the cleansing agent. They got part A right. They recognize they have sinned against God, but they don't have part B right. They think they can cover up for it with their own righteous deeds. But our own prophet says, Isaiah, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. He's not discouraging good things, but he's discouraging prideful human religious efforts to cover up for the nakedness of our sin when he said, I have done it all for you. I've provided the 
atonement, the covering through my own blood, if only you would believe. And so it was on Yom Kippur when um, Egypt and Syria and other Arab nations attacked. I'll ask you a question. What would happen if the United States or Israel attacked a predominantly Muslim Arab nation, say, during Ramadan? Tell me what would happen. And yet this was the day, the holiest day in the Jewish religious calendar when people are fasting and going to synagogue, temple, Families are coming together. Soldiers have laid down their arms. And that's when Israel's enemies attacked. And so Israel was forced to defend herself again. And if you uh, remember the outcome, she prevailed again. And if you speak to native Israelis who were there at the time, they're called sabras. <laughs> It's an Israeli fruit, kind of a pineapple, hard on the outside, soft on the inside. But Israel, I think you're hard both places. A sabra is a native Israeli. There's one right over there, sitting over there. That's why we gave him the first seat in the house. <laughs> Folks, um, Israel prevailed in 1973. And if you ask native Israelis, those who served in the military, everyone will tell you, we thought it was over. We're going to be driven into the sea. They had no lead time. They could not pre prepare. It was a surprise attack. But through divine intervention, they prevailed. Why? You see, God told us and told Israel things in his word. And so he said this through Jeremiah, his prophet, in chapter 31, verse 37. He, it says, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured. Can you do that? You, you say it's a poetic. It's a, no, you, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be searched out it, below, if you can do that, if that can be done, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. My people have done plenty. Wrong. And God sees it. But he says, nonetheless, no sooner can you measure the extent of the heavens and the depths of the earth than I will cast off my people, declares the Lord. And so that explains to me what happened during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. So since it was founded, the modern state of Israel, 1948, Israel has had to defend itself five times in five major wars, each of which was initiated uh, by Arab nations, the stated goal of which uh, is to drive the Jews into the sea. And yet, interestingly, now I made no editorial comment there. Every one of the five wars in the Middle East was initiated, inaugurated, and prosecuted upon Israel um, uh, by the Arab nations. Israel did not initiate any of those uh, wars. That's just a historical fact. And yet in spite of it, I find this to be quite interesting. You know of the United Nations Security Council? Uh, prior to 1990, 
there were 175 United Nations Security Council resolutions, and if you look at them, of the 175, 97 of them were directed against Israel. Interesting to me. Of the 690 General Assembly, the United Nations General Assembly, we remember, ain't that great. Of the 690 General Assembly resolutions uh, voted on in the United Nations uh, before 1990, 429 of the 690 were directed against Israel. Does that sound right to you? It just doesn't sound right to me. Israel has not initiated one war of aggression in the Middle East. In fact, I think Israel, rather naively, down to this very day, has pursued peace with her so-called neighbors. And so something happened in March, March 26, 1979. Uh, on that day, six years after the 1973 surprise Yom Kippur attack, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, perhaps you recognize him, uh, not too much hair, horn-rimmed glasses, little short Jewish guy, but a tiger, uh, Menachem Begin, who's now deceased, signed a peace treaty with uh, then-Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, who tragically uh, was assassinated for his participation in this peace accord. And the condition of the peace agreement was that Israel would give back the entire Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. And she did. Uh, the goal was land for peace, which would only be good if it worked. It hasn't. It won't. There will only be peace when the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, is welcomed into the hearts of Arabs and Jews in the land. Don't put your hope in any other place. I'm not very hopeful when the President of the United States makes a deal with Saudi Arabia to sell them $20 billion worth of military equipment. I want to ask you, who do you think is going to be the recipient of those arms in Saudi Arabian hands? I applaud all efforts to make peace. But the more I see the leaders of the world make an attempt at it, the more I see the Old Testament um, uh, alive again today when the prophets of Israel would cry, peace, peace, and God said, your prophets are lying to you. They say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. There cannot be. There will not be peace through human intervention or resolution of the conflict. Until a person is at peace vertically with the creator of the world, you cannot be at peace horizontally with anybody else. You'd think we would know that by now, but apparently we don't. So while President Bush is there in the Middle East, he, you know, uh, he has been there walking side by side with the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Omer, and then also with the leader of the Palestinian Authority, uh, Mahmoud Abbas. His nickname is Abu Mazen. And, and yet I can show you, uh, I, you can, if you want to, I can show you three video clips during the president's visit, Abu Mazen, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, spoke to his own in Arabic, and he showed them a picture of the extent of what the proposed independent Palestinian state would be, and it covers all the land of Israel. 
So why our president is talking about two peaceful nations side by side with the shared capital of Jerusalem, the head of the Palestinian Authority is saying, just wait, another foothold and we'll get it all. How in the world do you negotiate peace with people whose intentionality is to drive you into the sea? I don't see that it's possible. Don't you see all this is the precursor for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? He has to show us how impoverished we are and that our best efforts fall so far short of rectifying the very problems we have created so that we bow before him and say, come, Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord and lords, come and heal us, heal our land. We bow before you. So anyway, uh, this peace treaty took place uh, then, and then Israel negotiated another peace treaty on July 25, 1994. And this one was with Jordan. And you can see these very important people in the uh, uh, photo. On the left uh, was the prime minister of Israel then, Yitzhak Rabin, who was killed by a crazed maniac. Uh, then you see the late King Hussein of Jordan, whose son is now the present king of Jordan. You see Shimon Peres on the far right, and he's still a very, very influential politician uh, today in Israel. And then you see President Clinton up above where he likes to be. <clears throat> and so, there he is. So, um, but there has been no lasting peace in spite of these so-called peace accords. Uh, in fact, what there has been instead is a, a terrible, terrible... Um, chronology of terrorism in the land. And this brand of terror in the land uh, has uh, targeted all Israelis, mostly civilians, and has victimized both women and children and uh, families. Thousands uh, of Israelis have been murdered in terror attacks. In 1964, the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, a, a terrorist group, uh, was established by the Arab League uh, with the express purpose of destroying Israel. So Article 19 of the Palestinian Covenant, which is still part of the Palestinian Covenant. So people say the PLO was a terrorist organization, but the PA, the Palestinian Authority, no longer is. Yeah, but they, don't, they haven't struck what I'm about to read to you from the record. This is still part of the Palestinian covenant. The partition of Palestine in 1947 and the establishment of Israel is fundamentally null and void. Would you make peace with someone who denies your very existence? But that's what Israel has been asked to do. So Israel's foes to this day refuse to recognize the legitimacy of her existence, and yet Israel is expected to enter into peace treaties with them. And so there was another high-level peace treaty meeting which took place in 1993. This one was in Oslo, uh, Norway. Kind of humorous to me that all these Middle Easterners went to cold Oslo, Norway to make peace. But anyway, uh, at this meeting, Israel signed the Oslo Agreement. You've heard mentioned that, I'm sure. Uh, in Israel signed it, here you see Yasser Arafat on the right, who is deceased, passed away not long ago, the head of the uh, PLO. Under the agreement, Arafat and the Palestine Liberation Organization were given control over certain territories 
which Israel was required to give up. And those are the territories which we refer to today as the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, by the way, uh, the West Bank, in case you're interested, is ancient Judea and Samaria. It's the West Bank of the Jordan River, but it's Judea and Samaria. So, you know, land for peace. And so in this written agreement, in exchange for territory in the West Bank and Gaza, Arafat pledged to cease all attacks against Israel. It just seems a little out of balance. We will give you land if you stop killing us. Does that... That just doesn't seem like a good deal. Well, okay, that's the deal that was made. And so Arafat said, okay, thanks for the land. I'll stop killing you. But... He lied. So you have bombings and attacks uh, against Israeli citizens which continue in tremendous uh, sorrow in the land. So in 2000, uh, Israel, I think under pressure from the United States and other countries, made an unprecedented offer to Yasser Arafat at a meeting held here in our country at Camp David, the Camp David Accords. It was in July of 2000, and the meeting was hosted by President Clinton and Yasser Arafat, the head of the Palestinian Authority, and Ehud Barak, who was the uh, Prime Minister of Israel. He's still uh, a politician in Israel and making some rumblings, uh, indicating an interest, I think, in becoming Prime Minister again. Anyway, Barak was there three of them at Camp David and at the meeting Israel made an unprecedented offer to Arafat unbelievable the offer was of an independent Palestinian state and Israel offered to give to the new state of Palestine 97% of the territory in the West Bank and Gaza, and part of Jerusalem, Israel's capital for over 3,000 years since the time of David HaMelech, David our king. Ehud Barak made this offer. And you would think this is an offer that nobody could refuse. And yet, Arafat refused. He said, thanks, but no thanks. Why? Everyone was perplexed, even President Clinton. And I'll tell you why. Arafat plays, played his hand. He doesn't want a Palestinian state next to a Jewish state. He wants the extermination of the Jews. And so he refused that offer. And so since then, the terror and the burning in the land has continued. Since September of 2000, there have been over 16,000 attacks launched against Israeli citizenry and civilians. Homicide bombings and shootings, lynchings, mortar and missile attacks going on today. I ask you a question. What would we Americans do if our enemies were coming into our malls and restaurants, our pizza parlors, our buses, our supermarkets, wearing high explosives packed with nails and screws, hoping to blow themselves up and in the process kill and maim as many innocent American civilians as they possibly could, what would we do? 
And yet, increasingly, the world seems to be punishing Israel for defending itself. Explain that to me. While all this is going on, there is, and this is quite dangerous, a whole new generation of terrorists, even as we speak, being indoctrinated to hate both the United States, any supporters of Israel, and Israel, and it's the Palestinian children. I wish we had time so I could show you the curricula in Palestinian schools. Uh, the Palestinian children are taught to hate the Jews, to see them as subhuman, to be willing to sacrifice themselves in the intifada, the uprising, in order to gain entrance into the celestial pleasure promised to them by Allah. I must tell you, don't tell me it's just two people groups who can't get along. This is not the curricula in Israeli schools. We don't teach our kids to hate any people group. We don't orchestrate that kind of systematic indoctrination of our children to turn them against another people group. It just isn't the same. You know what Israeli kids are learning in their schools? Math, reading, history, not hatred of another people group. Past prime minister, also now deceased of Israel, Golda Meir, once said, we will have peace when the Arabs learn to love their children more than they hate us. Why such hate? The explanation is not political. That doesn't account for it. And it is not geographical. It is spiritual. There's a spiritual reality behind the scene. The continued existence of the Jews, not just in Israel but anywhere, proves that God tells the truth and Satan is a liar. That's what's going on. That explains it all. So let me read to you Psalm 83, and you can find it on the screen if you'd like. Psalm 83. Oh God, the psalmist cries out in desperation, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, and oh God, do not be still. I yearn for the day when my people cry out in the same way the psalmist did to their God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people. Ah. The psalmist got it right. He saw the assault to be against God through God's covenant people. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Don't you see if that happens, you have three options with regard to God. One, he's a liar. He didn't keep his word. Two, he's weak and couldn't fulfill it. Three, he doesn't exist at all. He's a myth. That's why the intense hatred against the Jews, and that's why there's been such astounding historical persecution against a dinky little people group. We number, I think, about 14 million now. We, I, we have one Jewish state, one the size of Rhode Island, and even there, 
the uh, West Bank and Gaza has been given up. Jericho, Bethlehem. There's nothing to it. It's dinky. You know, when we go to Israel, people say, Stuart, you make the claim that we're going to be able to cover the whole Bible in just a short period of time in Israel. How do you do it? Folks, there's nothing to it. Walk over here, you're in Genesis. Over here, you're in Exodus. I mean... And so the psalmist goes on, for they have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom, that would be modern day Jordan, and the Ishmaelites, from whom the Arab peoples come, Moab and the Hagarites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Middle Eastern nations, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Lebanon. Assyria also has joined with them. And to this list, uh, we could add the Nazis and the PLO and Hezbollah and Hamas and anti-Semites around the world. And behind it all, I have to tell you, is Satan, who is at war, not with the Jews. <coughs> He's at war with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's bent on the extermination of the nation. God chose through him to reveal his covenant of uh, grace, the Abrahamic covenant. God chose the Jews, not because of any good thing dwelling in them. Please don't ever hear me say that. It was all in spite of them to demonstrate that though they be unfaithful, he remains so faithful. <coughs> and if you can get rid of the Jews, you don't have any hope of this heaven you talk about. You don't have any hope of seeing your God face to face. You don't have any hope of forgiveness on the cross. It's all null and void because the character of God has been proven to be unreliable. Get rid of the Jews through whom God said, I will bless the world. And then Satan wins and he says, you see, God lied to you. So this is what um, is at stake. But I, I have to tell you, and I think you, most of you understand this, uh, Satan will not succeed. He will fail. The Israeli military is really, 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 really good. They're not as good as us. But they're good. But I don't care how good they are. It doesn't explain the continued existence of Jews in the land. These young uh, kids who make up the Israeli ministry, military, don't explain why after five wars of aggression by combined Arab nations, Israel is still in existence. This doesn't explain why the mighty Third Reich in Germany has come and gone. Philistines, everybody. And you, and you, get, you get Jews still around today. Well, what, what, what explains it? Well, what explains it is that God made an eternal covenant with the Jewish people. And God will keep his word. And, and I just want to read to you God's word. It's not mine. It's God's word. It's in Jeremiah 32, verses 37 to 41. Behold, I will gather them. Would you please, as I read this, be thinking, who do you think the them is? I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger. Well, let me answer for you. The them is our Jews. 
We're in the dispersion or the diaspora. We're all over the place. There are Jews all over the place. And God said, this happened in my anger because the Jews have sinned against their own God. In my wrath and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place. Now, you tell me what that this place is. Is it Angleton? <coughs> this place is the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land bequeathed to Abram and his descendants in Genesis chapter 12 when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and it was an unconditional promise. They got title deed to the land, not unobstructed enjoyment of it, but title deed to it. It's the land. I'll bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. That isn't the nature of things today with my people. My people, you know, give token consideration to Almighty God. On Yom Kippur, we fill the synagogues, and the rest of the time, most of us turn a deaf ear to God. But there will be a day when the relationship, as it was intended to be, will become personal and intimate. God says, I will give them one heart. My people need a circumcised heart. <coughs> we are hardened and stiff. But God says, I'll give them one heart in one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant. Could you please define for me what does everlasting mean? Yeah, it means forever. I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. I don't know who the next president of the United States is going to be, but I surely hope that person does not turn us against Israel. Because if you do, you're at odds with God. I will put them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. Israel has been unfaithful. I don't want anyone to praise Israel. But God has remained faithful. That's the point. Such a privileged group. Privileges, prophets, principles to live by, strictures, laws, Torah, commandments, prophets, all privileges. And my people has remained unfaithful. <clears throat> Every major cult group is heavily populated by Jews. Exchanging the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for uh, crazy stuff. So I don't want you to praise Israel or anything like that. I want you to know, I admit, my people are terribly unfaithful. We worship idols today, just like we did all through the Bible. But the point is that the God of Israel remains faithful. The church has been unfaithful. Would you like a record of the history of the church? The church has been unfaithful, but God remains faithful. You have been unfaithful. 
But don't be afraid. Your God remains faithful. He says where sin abounds, his grace envelops it, superabounds. He says the, though you be faithful, God remains faithful. So don't you see what's going on here? A people with such great privilege and such great insolence and disobedience still embraced by Almighty God? How do I know God has not rejected his people? There's always a believing remnant in every generation. That's why he's not turned his back on Israel and he will fulfill all of his promises, land promises to them as in the Abrahamic covenant, all of it in spite of them and thus prove he is the God of all grace. So my fellow Christians, don't doubt your eternity. Don't doubt your salvation. Don't doubt your full and complete pardon. Don't doubt your inclusion in the family of God. Doubt you. Put no confidence in the flesh. Sure. You sin in thought, word, and deed, as do I. It isn't about you. It isn't about me. It's about the God of all grace who says to us, as he said to Israel, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He said, one day, though you are not this way, you'll be presented before me holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He says, nothing can separate you, not even your own hardness and drifting and carnality and immaturity and backbiting and divisiveness. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know this is true? The Jew. Living proof that God is true to his word. It isn't about the faithfulness of Israeli leaders or American leaders or Jews or Gentiles. It's the faithfulness of Almighty God. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, God, my Father. There's plenty of changes with you and me, but there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou is immutable. You do not change. God doesn't change. Thou changest not. So thy compassions, though my obedience fails and yours does, his compassions, they fail not. You see, as he has been with Israel, so he forever will be with Jews and Gentiles, males and females, black and white, old and young, rich and poor, who call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who say, thank you for being my atonement. Thank you for sending your son, the Lamb of God, to suffer and die on my behalf. Thank you for having me just as I am. Thank you for granting me peace with you. Now send me forth as an emissary of peace in the world. Great is thy faithfulness. We ought to sing it. Do you mind standing with me? Let's just sing this, uh, what you see on the screen, and then our pastor will come. Let's sing this. Help me out. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Isn't this good? There is no shadow turning. So you can count on him because 
as thou. They don't fail. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Can you sing the next part? Great. 